If you can't get your voice memo off the phone, there's an app that will help you. Welcome to Dad's Review Kids Shows, the podcast that does what it says it does, but not today. Instead, we're doing something a little different. Matt and I are squeezing into tiny red hoodies and sitting down with a pair of extremely special guests. Angela Santamaro and Rachel Calvin, who are the creator and researcher, respectively, for a number of very well-known kids shows, including one we discussed in our inaugural episode, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. And um, I'm not sure if either of you have had a chance to listen to our little podcast, so I'll just tell you that... Um, I conceptualized Ed's Review Kids shows as um, Mystery Science Theater 3000, if it were hosted by Public Radio's Krista Tippett and the Prophet Jeremiah. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ben. I'm the father of Serena, who's six, and, and Thomas, who is two. He's very, very two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hi, my name's Matt. I'm the father of Eleanor, who's 11. Uh, who is very interested in the show. Um, she just really enjoyed our episode on, on, um, uh, Magic School Bus. Uh, oh, although yeah. she had some, she had some grievances to, to bring up with you, Ben. Um, my, uh, middle daughter, Charlotte, is seven, uh, and my youngest is one and a half. Her name is Hazel. And I'm also a user experience designer, and I'm really interested in using social science research methods to steer the powerful shaping influence of technology towards making us more empathetic humans. I work uh, in my day job at Fuller Seminary on a grant-funded research project collaborating with developmental and social psychologists on a mobile app for teens. Uh, it uses positive psychology to build patience, self-control, and emotional awareness. Um, and I'm really eager to dive in a bit into how that intersects with your worlds and uh, the kinds of ways that you're building some of these same characteristics in younger kids. Um, this is actually how Rachel and I first connected at a developmentalist psychology conference earlier this year, where I was presenting the app, and Rachel was commenting on a research study that had attempted to make use of Daniel Tiger to build empathy in kindergarten-age kids. <laughs> Rachel was both devastating and gracious uh, in her critique. They had cut up the show, um, <laughs> and, and Rachel couldn't help but, but stand up and say... Um, we had put hundreds of hours into into of research into that format. Um, did you think that maybe that's why it didn't work? Um, which, of course, uh, <laughs> well played. So I, I was I was sitting close by and I, I had to talk to her. So I'm curious about both your backgrounds as researchers, Rachel. You mentioned in the conference session that hundreds of hours of research went into the forming of the episodes. Could you talk a bit more about that process yeah. and how it impacts show design and what role does research testing with the kids and social science play? in the ongoing creation of the show. Sure. So uh, what my job as research director is to take in every episode that we do to kids way early in the process so that we know how kids are reacting, if they're learning, if they're understanding. Um, we take in a second draft of the script accompanied with pictures. So um, it looks like a storybook, and we sit on the floor with groups of three to five kids at a time, like three to five-year-olds, and we run little focus groups. So I read them the story. I ask them a ton of questions. We observe how they're paying attention, if they're engaging with the story, if they're interacting when we want them to interact. And all of that gets recorded into a memo that gets presented to the writers. And we work really closely with our writing team to collaboratively figure out how to fix whatever wasn't working in the script. So sometimes that could be... 
something as small as they didn't understand this one vocabulary word. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's as big as like, they just did not understand the strategy or they didn't understand the problem at hand. What could we do to fix it? And so this all starts really early in the process. Um, we test our pilot episode with, a million. I, I mean, I think that we, I think we ended up testing it with like 107 kids or something yeah. like that. Like it was over and over and over again. And then we tested again in what we call an animatic phase, which is, um, storyboards with voiceover. So it's, it's a pre-animation stage that happens. And, uh, so part of the reason we test the pilot so often is to come up with a, a more perfect formula for the show, however that show is going to work. So for Daniel Tiger, for instance, um, we had tested it with kids and there was just one, the, the pilot episode is about disappointment, just in case your listeners don't really know <laughs> Daniel as well as we do. Um, <laughs> and Daniel was disappointed because his birthday cake got smushed and he learns that he could turn it around and find something good and he could taste it. And when we tested it the first time, we asked the kids, um, well, what could you do if you're disappointed? And they said, eat it, taste it. <laughs> and we were like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> we have to figure this out. So that's how we started with the whole format of having repeated problems with the same strategy to solve them so that kids could really understand how to use those strategies in their own lives and why mm-hmm. we do two 11 minute episodes back to back. Um, and I think over the two episodes, we show something like six to eight times that kids on the show use the strategies. And that all came from research from the pilot. Uh, so it starts very early on and it goes throughout the whole process. Yeah, it's just just fantastic. I was I was talking to uh, another another podcaster named Mike McHarg, who does a show called The Literatist Podcast, another one called Ask Science Mike, and he was talking about the power of narrative. That there's actually some strong neuroscience research that suggests that if you engage with a narrative and you identify with the protagonist, and the protagonist learns something, you will begin to feel that you learned that thing very, very shortly afterwards. And I see, I once, once I heard that and I went back to Daniel Tiger, I started seeing that again. I mean, it seems pretty, it's on, it's on the face. That's very clearly the agenda of the show is to give strategies and to enact them through these narratives. But the, yeah, I love this idea that you're, you cannot watch an episode and miss the thesis. Right. Right. And, and the, the fact that it's set to song mm-hmm. doesn't hurt. And one, one of the things that has emerged from the from the, the question we threw out to our listeners on our Facebook page when we told them we'd be speaking with oh, you, yeah. and we said, "What do you what do you want us to tell them? What questions do you have?" <laughs> and it, 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 it immediately became very evident that um, a lot of people have a real emotional connection. That's true to those to those jingles, and not just because none of us can get the potty song out of our right. hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, and if, I mean on a on a on a personal note, I have to say that the uh, the 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 song that reminds kids that grown ups come back grown ups come back hit me at a very emotionally vulnerable time we were waiting to get clearance to go and adopt the aforementioned Thomas oh, uh, wow. from China and we were waiting and waiting oh are we ever going to get to go get this kid and Serena big sister was was watching this in the background and I heard that jingle it's the first time I encountered it and uh, you know it was. It was it was a gut punch. So it had it had levels of, of resonance, um, probably, you know, beyond your immediate intent. Um, I have to 
I have to pile on there. Uh, I, I, I will get in trouble if I don't share um, the mother of my daughter's uh, piece of feedback she wanted to share. There was a time when our middle daughter was very, very nonverbal when she was young. Her, oldest, her older sister talks for her most of the time. And so we never knew what she was thinking. We never knew uh, what she was feeling. And she often struggled to express that. And then after beginning Daniel Tiger, there were several key moments where I think my wife was, was helping her tie her shoes and she sang back to her, thank you for all the things you do for me. Um, and, and I think her heart melted and she collapsed wow. into tears uh, because it was this beautiful, uh, the, the show had given her words uh, and, uh, and a song uh, to express it. Um, wow. And there were several, I would say three or four instances like that that happened in around that same time when, when we weren't used to hearing her voice and suddenly she was sharing these whole sentences that, that she had, she could fit into her experience because she's in situated in these narratives. So thank you guys. Hmm. Thanks for sharing thank that you. so much. Thanks indeed. I was curious, Rachel, do you, do you work on the melodies of these as well, as well as the, as well as the text? So, um, we, I listen to everything that the composers compose. I am by no means musical. Um, so we, but we do listen to everything with the ear of a three-year-old as much as we can, um, and figuring out and giving notes on the pacing. So if like something's going to mm-hmm. be too fast for kids to be able to repeat, um, if the melody matches mm-hmm. what's happening in the show. So, you know, often I'll give notes about, well, this is kind of a serious moment and the, and the jingle is a little too high pitched. We might want to take it back a little bit. Um, so we always want to make it match the message of the show, both in tune and in wording. Great. Pace is something I want to talk about a little bit later as well, because the, the pacing of, of the show, um, does seem very, very deliberate and kind of stands in contrast, I would, I would say to so much. A lot of other kids fare out there, as yeah. you've probably noticed. Um, but, but before we get there, I want I, f- I want to address what I feel like is the tiger in the room, I guess, which is the <laughs> the the ur text, the source material, Mister Mister Rogers mm-hmm. himself. The um, when 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 I heard uh, the song about dealing with the emotion of anger, when you feel so mad that you wanna mm-hmm. roar, take a deep breath and count to four. You mean, I hear this as a spiritual heir to Mr. Rogers' Mad Feelings song. You know, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Yeah. Right? And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the philosophy of adaptation, one. And I'm especially curious about the challenges of working on, uh, working in the, in the huge, albeit slender shadow cast by the, by the source material. Um, do you, do you weary of fielding questions about Mr. O, why did you, why did you do this? Mr. Rogers doesn't yeah. do it that way. Can you? Yeah, I mean, I think if I can jump in, I think we became friends. I became friends with Fred back in the day because he was so my mentor from afar, and I would talk about the pacing on Blue's Clues as an inspiration. Uh, that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was an inspiration for the pacing wow. on Blue's Clues, and and obviously Fred was the first. Well, in my opinion, the first one to really break that fourth wall directly talk to preschoolers in a way that they could understand in with that with that level of pacing and so learning what we learned from the best is what we then started to put into the philosophy behind the shows and blues because was the first one and so after Fred died, the company saying like, what would you do to promote his legacy like we don't want 40 years of his curriculum to 
to go, you know, to the wayside. We think there's a lot to say to, to younger kids. And we obviously agreed. Um, and so one of the biggest things just to take a step back was to think about the socio-emotional cues and how can we put them in and create little handles for parents and for preschoolers, right? So they're so they're easy to hold on to. They're graspable. They're like really simple in terms of the wording. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, literally lifting from you know the huge category um, of song material that we had from Fred as well as his curriculum. And so there was a ton of that that we wanted to do. But before we were on the air, we were getting hate mail you know we were getting oh no like oh no i was i literally was and there was once where i just could not i could not um ignore it because <laughs> someone was like who is this person that thinks that they can take on fred rogers and blah blah blah, blah. and I, I was and obviously as a huge fred rogers fan i said i said well let me tell you who i am and who my team <laughs> is and what we're trying to do but one of the things that we talk about is we put a ton of nods of love in the show. So again, the show is simple in so many ways, but so layered and so much detail that even in the art, if you look at it, the way that we created the models of the neighborhood are all these clay, beautiful handmade models to, to again, resemble what um, Mr. Rogers' world was like and using the characters and the backstory of all of our characters in the neighborhood of Make Believe have grown up and now they're all pre, they're all pre, they all have preschoolers of their their own. Um, and all of that from the very beginning was really a huge, you know, um, hug for Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to, I have to confess, uh, that I was not as charitable towards Daniel Tiger's neighborhood as I wish I had been uh. after engaging with the show further, because I like many of your, I'm afraid to say, uh, hate mailers, uh, <laughs> I, I had an emotional attachment to the show, mm-hmm. both as a child and then as an, as a parent. God, it was the only show I could show my kids that would calm them down. Right. I mean, any other any other screen time would just amp them up. But we, for a period of time, we were my two oldest daughters and I were doing bedtime with Mister Rogers, and uh, they were they were ready to go to sleep right after after the, the land of make believe. Um, and I mean, it's it's hard to argue with you know, the observed results uh, like that. And so I think that anytime that you're taking on something that people love, you, you run the risk of that. But I think I, I love, the, I love this part of the story that you, you had a relationship with him uh, and that this really came out of trying to not let it end and not let all the work that he had built, the worlds mm-hmm. that he had built you know, pass away. So if you guys have listened, please accept my, <laughs> my, uh, my more considered, my more considered apology after, uh, we weren't so much negative about the show as we were. Right, we're uh, done. Are we done here? We're done. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we were trying to get to the bottom of why they felt so tonally different. Um, and uh, I think by the end of it, we, we sort of stumbled our way to realizing that you're aiming at a younger audience. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really clear if, you're, if, if a viewer is paying attention. Yeah, and um, Fred, Fred was really focusing on an older audience. Back when he started, there was nothing on television for children, and he was aiming even as high as nine years old, I think, was his sweet spot. Um, so mm-hmm. it is really bringing it to a new generation and, and a bit of a younger one, too. And, to, yeah. and that's why when we used animation, it was all about, again, trying to create that bond with the home viewer the way that Fred did um, in a live action scenario. And again, the way that we tried to do with Steve, right, in a live action scenario. Right. So what could we do from a from an animation standpoint? And we knew that animation for this young age group would be such an asset because we could visually support 
everything that we're talking about, mm -hmm. which was harder mm -hmm. in Fred's day, right? Because with puppets, it was much harder if he was talking about these big things to really be able to to have a visual for it. Yeah. Yeah, and how do you really have a visual for uh, the existential angst of Henrietta Pussycat? Right. I mean, you really have to feel that in your guts. Yeah. Yes, um. it is true. I noticed that the fourth wall breaking you talk about, the, the intimacy you're trying to create between show and viewer, even in um, the first couple episodes of Wish and Poof, which, which my daughter and I watched this week. Uh, Wh wish and Poof, Wish and Poof. Wish and Poof. Let's call the whole thing off. Wish and Poof, okay. <laughs> and, uh, wish and Poof, yeah. And the, the uh, proximity of Bianca mm -hmm. to, to us, the viewer. She, she gets right up in the camera mm -hmm. and... And she looks right into our souls, <laughs> which, which for a moment I found a little alarming. I'm like, wow, she's really <laughs> taking up a lot of the screen. Uh, but I realized, I, I quickly began to appreciate a number of things about it, including the pacing, the sort of call and response between character and viewer, the sort of liturgy that you're trying to create between them, which some shows have done, you know, plenty of, uh, Dora's done that. But this, it felt so measured and kind of, kind of calm in a way that I really appreciated and that felt very much of a piece with the Rogersian <laughs> legacy. At least that was my, that's my takeaway after just a couple quick episodes and ju juggling a two-year-old for much of it. So um. totally. and that's why research is so important because we don't necessarily create this interactivity bond with the home viewer for no reason, right? We're very, right. we have a point of view. We have a reason. We have a different curriculum for each of the shows that we've done. And then the way in which we talk to the camera and the dialogue that we use supports the theme. And so Rachel and her team are very important in that development plus every episode as we're going through research research to make sure that we're doing that. So you're not just screaming at the TV for no reason, or you're not, right. you know, at the end of the day, we want to know that kids are actually learning what it is yeah. that we set out to do. Cause we're not marketers. Like we're not going to just go out there and be like, your kid's going to learn X if they don't really learn it. And so we're, yeah. we just, we try our hardest and we have some longitudinal and summative research that can back us up in terms of super wide teaching mm -hmm. kids to read and um, some really great research that came out of University of Texas on Daniel Tiger's neighborhood in terms of what that um, emotionally resonates for uh, self-esteem and for lots of things in yeah. terms of the, the strategies are being sticky. We know it anecdotally as well as through the research. And I would say part of the reason why those strategies are so sticky and why the kids are gobbing onto them so, so hard is that we've worked really hard and Angela, since Blue's Clues, has done this thing where she creates a world where that character becomes the home viewer's best friend or good friend. And especially with Daniel, we were very careful to interact in a way with kids in that they felt like he was really talking to them. And that's why we give a lot of notes in a first season about getting closer and closer and closer to the character because we want to see his face and we want to see him really talking to me. Um, especially in an emotionally resonant right. show, right? We want kids mm -hmm. to feel the emotion that Daniel feels mm -hmm. so that they take it on, right? That's our goal. If Daniel is feeling impatient about something, we want our home viewer to also feel that impatience, which is different when mm. you're directing something for this age group than mm -hmm. for other, than for other age groups. That's our number one, our number one thing. I, I was just thinking back. We took, um, the episode that you were referring to mm -hmm. of Grown Ups Come Back. We took it into a preschool. It was like, October it was very early in the year and it was an automatic. So they were animation. I don't even remember now. And they're watching it. So we're just watching them watch. And 
you see their faces just completely reflect what is on the screen because they felt that anxiety that Daniel had of his parents leaving him at school and you saw it on their face and you saw it turn as the episode went on that they felt better knowing that grownups come back. But um, it's something that we're careful with because we don't want to push the kids too far and feeling anxious or hurt or sad, but we do want them to feel empathetic because that's how they're going to internalize the message. I mean, that's how, that's it. what I remember about that story is grabbing onto yeah. Rachel being like, we're going to make them cry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> them cry. Like, it's going to be okay. We're going to get them back. And that was right. We took them. Yeah. We did our job and we took on, on that emotional, we took them on that emotional journey. And at the end of the day, they did feel good. And then they had that strategy forever. <laughs> Yeah, we hear that one talked about a lot. So self-knowledge and reassurance, not necessarily like full catharsis is what we're looking for. <laughs> you don't necessarily want to leave them soggy at the end of the, no, uh, as no, the credits roll. No, you want them <laughs> no. to know that they have no. the tools to take care of themselves or, or they're surrounded with right. people who do. Exactly. That, that's part of what I really enjoyed about the two-part uh, structure is that uh, you go through a full narrative arc twice with mm-hmm. the theme with some different contextual features. And so it's, it's no longer a one-off. This, this is a, this is a full on life strategy. It works in a couple of different places. Exactly. Um, Completely different stories, right? So if you're, if you're, you know, you're watching all the way through, they're completely different stories that will get you brought in, but then we're using the strategy in that different way for that context. And that's part of Mm -hmm. why we added in that strategy song was to add another six examples over that so that kids really understood that mm-hmm. this is something that they can use in their lives in many situations. Right. And then, and then the, the singing of the song becomes the sort of, uh, the sort of, uh, reminder of, right. of, of, of quoting the first line of the hymn, uh, to bring the whole context back to you. Oh, uh, yes. I remember that time when Daniel left, but his parents came back. Yeah, exactly. As a devoted fan of Mr. Rogers as a child and as a parent having shared with my kids, I have to confess, to a few sort of inception moments in watching Daniel Tiger travel freely between the settings from the land of make-believe and from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Uh, the music store, for example, really blew my mind. I was like, no, he can't. How did Daniel travel to the music store? <laughs> um, because that was in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and the land of make-believe. And there's a hard boundary in Mr. Rogers' uh, show where, and there's sort of this dual, this duality where the same actor he got to come on for the, for the guest spot also becomes a character in, in um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I really love to imagine those conversations of, like, you want to come on the show? Okay, you want to be a dog? Uh, <laughs> in the original Daniel Tiger, we have this unsure, unsure, insecure, really kind of scared uh, and, and constantly sort of checking uh, child that kids can identify with. Um, but then him merged with the sort of protective guide role of Mr. Rogers. So... In your minds, is Daniel the heir to the cardigan and sneakers? Is he Mr. Rogers? I mean, clearly he puts them on in the opening segment. Was there was there a subconscious desire to merge the aspects of, of Fred's personality with, with Daniel Tiger? I mean, there's a lot of love all the way through for Fred um, and to make sure that the audience remembers who he is, whether it's your mother, grandmother, father, whoever, um, so that there's always those nods of love. We've created a character of Daniel that is based on the original Daniel um, Tiger and also based and inspired by the messages of Fred Rogers, mm-hmm. right? So we're very careful to say we're not embodying who Fred Rogers is as a person in an animated 
tiger who's five, you know, or four. Mm -hmm. It's much more about what we're trying to do at the end of the day, which is promote um, the socio-emotional curriculum that Fred worked on for, for 40 plus years. Did he have an explicit curriculum that he wrote, or you're saying that's implicit in the show? It's implicit within the show, and we have um, a really lovely, active um, conversation at the start of every season and then throughout the season with the Fred Rogers Company, who many of them have been working with Fred for the entire 40 years. And so they have a strong wow. point hmm. of view about what he would do, and we appreciate and love that the philosophy is very different than many of other shows or other philosophies mm-hmm. about how to make sure that it's always a kid first. Um, and we're really thinking about the, that, that child, even though the adults are the guiding force that come in, the child is always the one who's going to come up with some sort of solution, whether they're failing, whether they fail at it the first time or not, and just literally trying to get messy and, and try to own things as they walk through that world. Wow. Um, but in terms of your question about Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, I do want to say is that that was a conscious decision to include Main Street and Include that area so that we could see a diverse group of neighbors that live and support preschoolers, as well as um, going a little bit further into seeing the tree, into seeing all of the castle, all of the main areas of the of the neighborhood of make believe as well. So yes, we definitely made a conscious decision to include both. Um, of the areas within the animated world. That's that's really beautiful, and I especially especially appreciate the the ways in which it, it is. You know, uh, a lot of kids shows want to try to sidestep the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic diversity uh, issue by just saying, "Oh, we're all animals." I, I really appreciate in in going back and viewing again for this uh, this conversation the ways in which it really is a it really is a representative community of of a broad variety of folks and they're all seem to be invested in the kids. Yeah. Which I think kind of leads into Ben's question. You do you want to talk about <clears throat> Lady Elaine? <laughs> a little bit. There were a couple a uh, couple listener questions about this and if they if they uh, hadn't brought it up I was going to I was trying to imagine undertaking the task that 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 you undertook which is to reimagine the land of make believe for a new generation. And I confess that I, I would have been at kind of a loss about what on earth to do with Lady Elaine Fairchild, who was, <laughs> how to put this delicately, eccentric. Um, and yet you managed to turn her into a sort of Martha Stewart, uh, which, for which I, I think you yeah, deserve right. congratulations. Can you, and I'd, I'd love to know about, about that process and, you know, other principles of inclusion or exclusion as you thought about adapting this for a, for a younger audience. Well, again, there is a point of view about why every character was part of the original series. And actually, Lady Elaine was named after Fred's sister. So it was also not somebody that we really felt strongly that we could not include. But her, she was ah. different and eccentric, right? And a little bit wackier. And there's, there are people that you know that are like that. And it's, and it's really fun. So we took those parts of her personality and then created a persona, um, of Miss Elena's mom. And we had her, we had her marry, um, music man Stan which is somebody that we created for Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood to create this to create our Miss Elena character that's her daughter mm-hmm. and so we've got we've had a lot of um, conversations I don't know if you've seen online and Twitter yeah. about that in terms of their family and who she is and all of those kinds of things so we she's resembled I mean I think that if you know the character she definitely resembles the original character but sure Absolutely. We, um, Ben and I caught up to season six, episode one. We both ended up watching, which is, uh, I believe about, uh, when you get hurt, find a grown up to help you uh-huh. feel better. 
that may not be the title, but that's what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were sort of imagining if, if Lady, if you're playing at Lady Elaine's museum go round and you fell and got hurt, you might just as likely have, have found her saying, well, get over it, toots. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, <laughs> that's just how life is. Um, in a, as a child, I remember being terrified of her uh, and thinking that she was just a, an edgy, sort of scary person in the land of make-believe. But, you know, as, as you grew up, as you said, those people are in your community and they're, they're not always that scary. And uh, I mean, there, there's a few characters in the land of make-believe who are, uh, have some particularly relationally rough edges. You know, you can learn early on from King Friday that the parental father figure may uh, have absurd demands that everyone will have to dance around and not offend. Those it seems it seems that a lot of the relational rough edges for some of these older these adult characters have been somewhat smoothed over. It's hard to find an adult in Daniel Hyde's neighborhood who wouldn't be supportive and helpful if you fell and skinned your knee. Right. One of the things that the pieces of feedback we got from our listeners was it's kids will have a very positive view of adults. Adults are, and that seems like a, a real value for the show. Um, well, and they're little, right? Our kids are two to four, two to five years old. And so we just feel strongly, um, you know, speaking mm-hmm. for you, but definitely jump in that, that we need to put them in a, in a hug, right? Like we have a smaller boundary of what we want yeah. them to know about right. the world. And then yeah. as they get older, you start to open that up and open that up with a little, with still your boundary, with still your, you know, your fence around it to just make sure you're there for your kid until they're finally out there. So it's not that you, you stay that tight and tell people, tell kids the world is is this beautiful place of the neighborhood of make-believe for the rest of their lives. But, you know, I think that when they're this little, we really feel strongly in order for them to learn, they need to feel relaxed. They need to feel familiar. They need to feel stress-free. And that's our goal. Yeah. Our goal is to give them the tools that when they do realize that somebody isn't going to, you know, act like mom and dad tiger, that they'll be able to at least achieve that. And also what we're hearing is that parents are learning yeah, from the, the way in which that we're scripting the yeah. parents on the show. Yeah, it wasn't, a, it's not our first intention, I would say. Our shows are definitely written for the child. Um, but we always make sure to model good parenting technique because if a parent's in the room, if a parent's watching, we want them to learn something as well. And so we think it's really important to put that positive sense on all of the adults in the neighborhood um, so that they can take away something that they could learn as well. And it's a fine line, right? We don't want them to be perfect. We've seen mom get really angry. Um, we've yeah. seen, you know, and yeah. we, we know that King Friday wouldn't be um, sitting on the floor with the kids and playing. Like King right. Friday is definitely a little bit more hands-off. Like we play with, a, with some of the different kinds of parents. But yeah, at the end of the day, they're still all very helpful because we, we value that. And we also, group. we try to touch on, you know, how the world could be a scary place, but in a safe way with adults around you. So we have a storm in the neighborhood. Um, and that was partially done because of all these natural disasters that were happening in the world. We wanted to see, say, well, what could kids put on if they're in one of these situations to feel better? Um, and so we have an episode mm-hmm. with a storm in the neighborhood where they go and they, and they have to help fix the playground. Um, but de- we, ha- we are doing in this coming season, um, a death episode for the first time. We're, Ooh, uh, just spoiler, really? but Daniel, Daniel, one of Daniel's fish dies. And so we deal with uh. death now. We feel like this far into the process of the series, we've earned the trust of a lot of parents and a lot of kids and we could take on harder topics now, but 
we did feel like we had to get that trust first and we had to establish that bond with Daniel and the child and know that it's safe before taking on these bigger topics. But we, we wrote and produced this death episode that I think came out really beautifully. We tested it with kids, um, both in scripting stage and in animation because we thought it was just so important, um, to, to hit on the line of not scaring kids about death and not making them too sad or scared about what might happen, but explaining it in a way that would help kids who are dealing with it on their own. That's fantastic. As a person who lost uh, his father at three, I I think that's part of why I, I gravitated towards Fred Rogers and his show is that uh, there is a sense in that show that he is going to acknowledge the shadow side in a way that you don't get, I didn't yeah. get from any other show or really many other spaces He's going to talk about his experiences of alienation. He's going to talk about his experiences of feeling disconnected or sad or afraid uh, in a way that I think was groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and I love the way that you guys have carried that into an even younger audience. Um, but by, by really making it centered on them and by, by doing the research to actually accomplish the goals that you're aiming for and testing with the people you hope will get it, right. that's, that's, that's really powerful. Uh, I'm also happy to see you guys engaging the shadow side a bit more. Um. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, every episode that we do for a three-year-old, that is the shadow side, right? Like right. having to share your car mm. for a three-year-old is a really big deal. <laughs> and having a new baby it's come true. along is huge. So, you know, I think as adults, part of the reason why Good we do point. research is as adults, we don't realize that those things are so big. Like learning how to ride a bike and all of those things for kids are are just very major and could be very traumatic. And so we deal with them as serious subjects because I think that that's how yeah. they take and it. And we love that we take it a, a little bit further in the sense that when, when we're sharing the car, it's like, you can get a turn, but then I'll get it back, right? Like that was really important. You know, you always tell kids to share, but we never say, but then you'll get it back. It's okay. We need to have that reassurance. Thank you. And then even in, the, mm -hmm. we did an episode about I'm sorry, right? And the idea, we spent a lot of time yeah. talking about how I'm sorry is almost like a catchphrase as opposed to what we did was I'm sorry. Now, how can I help? So that you're kind of, you're taking it to the next level of mm -hmm. ownership um, and then, and then compassion. Well, I like the, the practical tools or sort of action pattern that you offer to kids. So not only is it okay to acknowledge the feeling, you know, name it and feel what you're feeling, but then like, what's the next step? What can you do to make yourself feel better and process and then actually, uh, and then, you know, reconcile yourself as needed with the people who your emotions may have alienated you from. I like that that seems built in to a lot of the jingles and the, and the themes of each episode. Actually, one, there was one listener question concerning the Stomp Three Times song. Mm -hmm. um, uh oh, there's no English being exchanged. Uh oh, uh oh. Well, is this, what was has, her question? Has this I'm come up curious. before? Her question, she, I think she had reservations about that particular episode because she worried it was, uh, it was giving her kids license to act out and throw a tantrum. Right. And so the house, their house rules were, you know, stomping, stomping is crossing a line mm -hmm. for, for them. And her kid may have been a heck of a stomper in a way that uh, not all of them are. I don't, I don't know the, we, the context. We pointed but. her to your research-driven approach, and she said, I, I believe that they are trying to do something that they've thought about this. Yes. I just right. don't know what it is. So, <laughs> so the background of that is that we work with the, this amazing group at the Fred Rogers Company. Part of them are armchild psychologists and educational experts. And 
their take is that sometimes kids need a physical release of anger. And so stomping is a safe way to do that. The, The other piece of that, which we did think about a lot was, well, then how do you stop them from stomping, right? Like you don't want them stomping for a half an hour, like no good can come of that. Or, so, or on the cat. or yeah. Right. So that was why we put in the stump three times. Because the ah. three times was limiting enough that we felt like mm-hmm. it would be a safe way for kids to get their emotions out and physically express themselves without causing havoc. Right. So it was actually a very... We spent a lot of time discussing this. It was very well <laughs> thought out. And we have been getting a lot of feedback because I don't know that parents... I don't know if they don't know exactly well how the show is presenting it, if they're only seeing the behavior afterwards. Mm. And there are different kinds of kids, right? There are those kids who will take that deep breath when they need to calm themselves down, right? And then there are those kids who really do right. need to get it out. And so we wanted to give them a safe place to get it out as opposed to stomach the emotion, right? Which is another thing. We <laughs> right. want them to like cry if they're sad and there's a context yes. or it'll get, you know, yeah, yeah it's going to be sad and little by little it'll get better. And so those are the kinds of things that we felt that was important. And it was interesting that the feedback that we got was that we were giving them kids license to have a meltdown. But what really what we were doing is giving kids license to feel and to express in a safe place with a limitation on it. It was, yeah. was the goal. Well, it seems like Fre- Fred Rogers, you know, saying to kids, you can, you can pound some clay or some dough. Right. right? Exactly. Same, same idea. Um, People had discussed even, do you talk about pounding a, a thing of clay? And, and there's other research that's out now that we decided not to do that um, and decided to do this instead because it, it seems like it's more in line with what the research says today. Right. Punching mm. or pounding wasn't something that we wanted to, to get into, right? And so it was much more of a physical. That's an easily transferable skill. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, um Angela, you recently wrote in a blog post on the American Academy of Pediatrics decision to roll back the screen time restriction on kids under two and opting to emphasize content, context, and co-watching. It's a great, that blog post I shared with Ben and we'll share with our listeners is a great introduction to your show's use of narrative and music to actively form virtues like patience, empathy, and perspective, uh, perspective taking to kids, especially at a time when bad examples of this are so pervasive uh, in our culture and media. We watched all the presidential debates my family and I did with our 11 and seven year old daughters. And they took considerable debriefing to, 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 to get through. What advice do you as a team have for us and our listeners as dads uh, and parents who are watching with our kids and seeking to develop some critical engagement with the media narratives that we consume? Such a great question. And we're talking about that now, not only within ourselves, but also within our colleagues of kids media um, and, you know, we, what I was writing about and what we talk about is that what we spend so much time showing empathy, showing kindness, showing it in little ways, as well as in a bigger theme ways, showing, you know, letting somebody else have a point of view and to talk and embracing diversity and, and of opinion of, of, of it all. And so for us, it's critical viewing, right? It's definitely having that time to sit down and co-view and then have a very open conversation about what what was seen from the point of view of the child, right? So I'm not putting my, you know, mm. I was about to say my age, no, I'm putting my point <laughs> of view um, on my chat, my kids. But again, we watched it with our girls too. And then literally answering the questions that they had about what they saw. Yeah. And it became about debate and being a respectful 
um, human being and understanding um, the level of debate. And then we did we did talk about the different kinds of media and things that we read that allow you to to see the kind of world that we would like to emulate. Well, I can tell you, even my seven year old, she knows she knows when someone's interrupting. There were times when I was uh, pleasantly surprised at her eruptions of laughter in response to the sort of uh, rudeness taking place on stage. Really on both sides. I mean, and part of that is just the genre of debate. Um, But it was it was interesting to note how they were reading these two figures through the norms of our family and through the norms of their community. And still seeing, like, this person, this person is being rude. Right. Um, and so I was happy to see that. There, there were also a lot of hilarious uh, political cartoons sketched by my oldest, which uh, I'm, I'll, I'll link you to on Twitter. That would be uh, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my daughter said, I don't know how you're, my little one who's 13 said, I don't know how you're watching because I'm getting a stomach ache. Really? Watching yeah. this. And so, I mean, my advice to back to your question is to just make sure that whatever it is that we're mm. bringing into our living room through media, that we're ready to, to at least co-view or answer yeah. questions or know what they're watching so that a, they don't emulate or model what they're seeing, no matter how old they are, we're making it okay. Right. I think a lot of times without the conversation, you're saying it, this is all okay. Um, right. and, and need to have that conversation, whether you're watching or not, just to have that. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Open. Yeah, because even if they're not watching, I do think that they're hearing a lot from their friends. People, I've heard a lot of anecdotes about kids who have been very sheltered from the political system and what's happened in the past year at home. They are not allowed to watch anything. They don't talk about it. And yet they come home with a lot of stories about what their friends are telling them. And so it is being open to having those discussions and knowing what your kid knows and being able to react to it, too. Now, I really appreciate the kid focus, though. This is the big piece that I'm hearing that I, that is kind of missing um, in, in, I think, in, in my dialogue with my own kids is really trying to understand, really deeply get into their developmental space. Yeah. Uh, what, what about this piece of media is landing for them, is, is hitting home, is upsetting or disturbing, and, um, or what about it is, is really something they can identify with. And that seems like that's at the heart of your, of your work and your research. And as they get older, it's one of those things for me is that they look older as if they can emotionally handle so much more. But truly, right, once we know, when we know development, we know that they're just big Labradors, you know, like they're just, they still need the, like, they need the hug and they need the understanding and the ability to be egocentric up until they're, what, I don't know, 18? Yeah. Yeah. Can we we look forward to future PBS or Amazon or Netflix shows coming from your creative imagination aimed at millennials where they are now? Are you going to be, you know, keeping pace with your own kids as they they grow? (laughs) We'd love to, you know, I think it's one of those things where that's where we see a need, you know, we definitely see a need going older. It's, it's also, you know, it's just literally what we can do, but we're, we don't just make shows to make shows, right? It is about what it is that we're answering and, and what kind of questions that we sure. have. And right now we hope to be making Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood until we're about a hundred. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. And, and I echo what Matt said earlier in as much as, um, we hadn't really encountered it a whole lot in our family until I was until we were prepping for for the, for the show and thinking about it vis-a-vis Mr. Rogers. And since then, it's become a mainstay. And we mm-hmm. so um, I hope it's always nice to meet a fan. Yes, totally. Awesome. <laughs> always. <laughs> a last question about Mr. Rogers. Always acknowledging that you're probably again 
tired of constantly talking about the, the, the two in, in, in tandem, but it seems uh, unavoidable somehow. Do you feel like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is a show that could be made today in the current media landscape? What I, people have asked me that before, and what I've said is I would really love to meet the ne- network executive that would say no to Fred Rogers. Like, he, he was so um, oh. influential um, in the way that he, I'm sure you've shared the video of him speaking in front of Congress. Like, so he was so influential and, and inspirational that I just cannot imagine. Um, that being said, I think that... Um, it's, it's hard in terms of the target age, right? If he, if the same content was for nine year olds, um, it would be interesting to see how the, the show would have evolved if it was out there today. But I know my own kids grew up watching it. So I think it still, it still resonates and the themes are still brilliant. And, um, I would like to say yes. We always talked about it in the beginning of the series that we wouldn't dare cast a Mr. Rogers, though. Like, you can't cast that role. It has to be something that comes from inside whoever that next person might be. Um, yeah, he was, Fred Rogers was born. He was born that way. (laughs) And that was a number one reason why we went to animation, really, was because there was no way we would ever try. You can't put him together by committee. No, No. and that's not going to happen. I'm not interested in that. (laughs) <laughs> well, if, if you're interested in, in, uh, in, in a sustained meditation on the virtues, uh, of St. Rogers, um, our, our episode, <laughs> uh, our episode does spend a lot of time uh, talking about what he did and, and, and just the, really the shift in, in what a show is. I mean, the, yeah. uh, the, the show early in the early years was so low budget and so improvised and yet, uh, so still had that, that sort of core essence of, unconditional positive regard yeah. and a person who is, who is an adult who is paying attention to you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Huge. It's huge, right? He was talking just to me. That's what I say. Yeah. I was that four year old yeah. who could not sit any closer. He was talking just <laughs> yes. to me and I watched it way beyond I was supposed to be watching it because <laughs> it really calmed, calmed me down and studying the show and understanding the show. Like he had real musicians on set where yeah. yes. they were able to play the piano right there. I mean, there's so many elements that are absolutely beautiful that um, I think will stand the test of time. I have to imagine that his persona offset was pretty much in line with what we saw on screen. That's what everybody says. It was yeah. definitely my experience in meeting him. He was exactly that same person, which thank God, right? Like I just, you know, would have, I would have. Seems like it'd be hard to fake it for four oh, decades. Yeah. I've heard so many stories of people meeting him in Penn Station. Just he randomly just says, and he is just with you. He's a hundred percent present. Um, mm. and it like touched everybody who has a story like this. Like they all remember it from when yeah. they were a little kid. It, it's amazing. I think he was always that person. That was mine. Mm. I said, I ran up to him and I talked in my New York quick language and said, I just want you to know the whole reason I went into children's television is because of you. And I made shows because of you. And I really just hope that one day that I'll be able to touch as many children as you have in terms of your messaging. And he just stopped me and he yeah. said, and what's your name? <laughs> and we started over. We started the conversation completely over. It was amazing. Oh, wow. That's gorgeous. 
Wow, so you actually, you that's how your relationship with him began? You saw him in the station? Well, I was able, I used to talk about him all the time, and so um, we went, I went to a University of Pennsylvania at Amherst conference, and they sat me at his table for lunch, and of course, I didn't eat anything the entire time, <laughs> um, and that's how it started. He invited me to set, um, and I got to go and watch him on set, which I was just like floored, um, oh and then gosh. had a couple of conversations after that in terms of Blue's Clues had already started, and so people were making such a big deal about Blue's Clues, and I just kept being like, shh, we're at Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about. My four-year-old self is freaking out right now. Um, So, you know, we talked a lot about the pacing and and what we were trying to do, and I told him about, you know, my child development background and all of those things. And so we just had a like-mindedness about kids and kid first and what we wanted to do, and it wasn't necessarily the most exciting. What he used to say all the time, like, you know, how do we make sure that we keep what we're trying to do with child development in the limelight, you know, how do you make sure that it's always flashy, you know, because our messages, we are so pointed on, on the kids and we always, and you know, and we just said that content is king, right? We're going to, you know, the flashiness is because we're reaching kids and and we get that back. Now I think he would, he would have loved social media to be able to get all of the accolades that we can get. Um, what would a Mr. Rogers Twitter account be like? Right? Yeah. It would have been awesome. Huh. I kind of need one right now. <laughs> it's going to be okay. All right. Look at the helpers. Well, a great, a great number of us are very grateful that you have uh, taken trust of his, of his legacy and, and uh, done such, such uh, uh, lovely and meaningful things with it. We ask our listeners at the end of every episode to write in or tweet in and tell us what kids' shows they've been watching and what ours should be watching or not watching. And, and both of those make for great podcast fodder. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you have any recommendations for us for, for uh, future podcast reviews. Uh, is there anything you particularly like or loathe that I um, that, uh, think d- d- deserves our, our tender, loving treatment? Well, I have to make a plug for the other shows that we tend to we do <laughs> a, ton of, a ton of research on that I'd love your, your take on. Um, like a creative galaxy on, on Amazon Prime because we're really trying to get kids to go out to view and do and go out in the world. So I'd love your point of view mm-hmm. on that. And Wish and Poof, as you've already said, Daniel Tiger, yes. who's, who's super why. Yep. What I would be curious also, and we have nothing to do with these, so go, go wild on them. But, <laughs> so there's, there's like a new genre of older content on Amazon right now that, as an adult, yes. I think is fantastic. Gordimer Gibbons, um, Just Add Magic, things like that. And I'm, I think that that would be really interesting to find out what you guys think and what your kids think. Because it's definitely mm-hmm. um, a new way of looking at older content. Agreed. Well, we, we cannot thank you enough for your, your time and your behind-the-scenes uh, uh, Easter eggs into a, a show that uh, both of us are big fans of. This is this has been terrific, <laughs> and uh, I, I I say to each of you in parting, agamaga. Agamaga. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I feel good about it, even if we can't get there recording. I think this there weren't any major glitches, and um, you might have to edit out condom. 